I'm Effie Parks. Welcome to Once Upon a Jane, the podcast. This is a place I created for us to connect and share the stories of our not-so-typical lives. Raising kids who are born with rare genetic syndromes and other types of disabilities can feel pretty isolating. What I know for sure is that when we can hear the triumphs and challenges from others who get it, we can find a lot more laughter, a lot more hope, and feel a lot less alone. I believe there are some magical healing powers that can happen for all of us through sharing our stories, and I'll take all the help I can get. Once Upon a Gene is proud to be part of Bloodstream Media. Living in a family affected by rare and chronic illness can be isolating, and sometimes the best medicine is connecting to the voices of people who share your experience. This is why Bloodstream Media produces podcasts, blogs, and other forms of content for patients, families, and clinicians impacted by rare and chronic diseases. Visit bloodstreammedia.com to learn more. Hello, friends. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to Once Upon a Gene. I'm your host, Effie Parks. I'm so excited. In a couple days, you know what it is? It's Rare Disease Day 2023, and I... I'm beaming. I've been loving watching everybody's plans leading up to the day. Special shout out to everyone going to the Capitol. I can't wait. Please tag me in all of your stuff so I can make sure to support you and share all of the amazing uh, events that you'll be, you're going to be holding. Keep me posted. There's a link in the show notes to the local paper. My girlfriend, Jill Hawkins from FAM177A1 and I are hosting a rare soiree. We are going to have a live auction. We're going to be raising money for our kids' disorders. We have so many fabulous people coming. There will be zebra stripes. Take a look at the article to learn all about it. I can't wait to share it with you. Day of. I have a very special episode coming for you in just a few minutes. My guest is the founder and CEO and chairman of Enlorem Foundation. He's also the founder and former CEO of Ionis Pharmaceuticals, which was the leader in RNA-targeted therapeutics. Under his leadership at Ionis, he pioneered development of the revolutionary Antisense technology platform and created one of the most advanced and largest pipelines of the biotechnology industry. Think Spinraza for SMA. He led the creation of Antisense technology, and his foundation, Enlorem, is using that to discover, develop, and provide personalized experimental antisense oglionucleotide medicines to nano-rare patients for free for life. He's going to answer a lot of FAQs that you probably have, and he's just a really special, gentle soul. I know you're going to learn a lot. You're probably going to need to listen to this episode more than once to get all the information. So let's just get right to it. Please enjoy my conversation with Stanley Crook. Hello, Stan. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, and it's very nice to be here. Thanks for, thanks so much for having me. Yes. I have been a fan from afar for a very long time. I first heard an interview with you on my buddies, the Two Disabled Dudes podcast, and then I had the pleasure of being at the Rare Entrepreneur Bootcamp with Ultragenics, where you spoke online again, and it's just such a pleasure to actually get to talk to you in person. So thank you for joining the show. Well, I think I can, go, I can only go downhill from here, so, <laughs> <laughs> so I'll do my best to not disappoint you too much. Yes, Dan, please. Okay, well, hey, let's just uh, kind of start from the beginning. Can you please share some of your uh, past experience in your career and where where it all started? I, <laughs> it's a checkered career. I started out in aeronautical engineering, and then I went to pharmacy school. And then I did an MD, PhD, and health staff training at Baylor College of Medicine in, in Houston, Texas. And 
went on to faculty there and was on the faculty there for about, oh, 25 years or so. Well, I did other things and got interested in drugs and came to the conclusion that I could help more patients if I could make more drugs and went to the industry and uh, uh, at a time when, you know, people like me didn't typically go in the industry. And in the first five years of my career, I led the building of the um, first um, broadly based successful anti-cancer program in the industry and put a couple of drugs uh, on the market that when added to each other and a drug called vinblastine, uh, we were able to cure testicle cancer, which was at that time when I started a death sentence for a young man in, in about six months. And then I moved on and became president of R&D at, at SKB, which is now GSK, and was involved in quite a number of drugs that uh, were, were marketed there and continued my academic career both at Baylor and at Penn. And then in uh, 1989, I founded IONIS to pursue a new technology for drug discovery that I thought had the chance to make a real difference in the industry. And that was IONIS. And in 2000, I retired as CEO of IONIS and initiated an Enlorum, which, which I suppose is what we're really going to talk about today. So like my parents and my husband's parents, you finally retired and decided, no, I think I'll keep working. <laughs> well, <laughs> not quite. I had, it was very clear I wasn't retiring. I'm continuing, you know, I'm an active scientist and continue to be a very active scientist, but I certainly hadn't planned on working quite at the level and in the way I'm working for Ann Lauren, but it's been like every other phase of my life an extraordinarily wonderful experience, and I'm very glad to have had it. It's really remarkable, the path. What made you start Enlorem, Stan? Really, the, the concept began around 2017 when I realized that the technology we had created could potentially help individual patients and that the economics of it I could make work, uh, as well as, you know, how, how rapidly and, and broadly useful the technology could be. And it really began with a, a visit from a couple of parents who had children with an extremely rare ion channel mutation. And it was very clear that a commercial model really just would not work in a prevalence that's so low as a, a two or three or four or five patients. And I spent the next couple of years then putting everything else in place. Having the technology to make a drug for a patient is a, a, a fraction of what's needed. You need access to the patients who are appropriately characterized. And I needed to work with the FDA to make sure that, that regulations would be geared to support doing this. And so that took a couple, three years. And then in January of, of 2020, I felt all the pieces were in place and founded in Lorem. I know several of the families that I'm close with and who listen to the show have either applied or work with you at Enlorem or they're very well-versed in the science of it and have done a lot of their homework. But also a lot of the families that listen are brand new and they're kind of finding their footing and diving in. Can you give them a few important definitions of what you do at Enlorem that those people kind of in the beginning need to know? Yeah, let's start with the technology. Most of the drugs that the, that the folks on this podcast take are called small molecules. And that's been the basis of the industry since 1900. And Anasense technology is dramatically different from that. With ASOs, we design chemically modified pieces of genetic information. 
And those pieces of genetic information then allow us to target a specific RNA, which is, of course, the the molecule that gets transcribed from your DNA to make the protein that needs to be made to make your cells work. And because we now understand that code very well, and because we have a lot of experience and spent more than three decades developing this technology, that allows us to be very rational, very rapid, very inexpensive compared to a traditional drug development, and much more efficient. So you can think of this as a as, as, as a chemical with a genetic zip code. And the genetic zip codes precisely defines the site at which that drug will bind to the target in the cell. So it's much more specific as well. So in the nanorare patient, that is the patient with a unique mutation in a single gene that causes the disease, we begin with this incredible advantage. We know the cause of the disease. Most of the time, we don't. Uh, in the larger diseases, they're multifactorial. So armed with knowing the cause, we can then create a genetic medicine for many of these uh, genes and mutations and do that very rapidly and inexpensively and then provide those medicines for free, for life, to patients with these extremely rare mutations that are really not amenable to a commercial solution. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between these antisense drugs and traditional gene therapy? Let me let me step back a little bit from that and, and, and focus on what a chemical actually does and is. A chemical is just a piece of chem- information. And you can think of the universe as just an information, you know, a sea of information. With a small molecule, you have very little information in that, in that molecule. And then they're designed to interact with proteins that are enormous and tremendously complex. And so it's an extremely inefficient process. With antisense, we have designed sufficient information into the molecule to mean that it will bind specifically to one site and one site only in a, a disease cell and address the problem. And so with Anisense, we're using genetic information to create a genetic type drug, but it's very different from a gene. A gene, of course, is enormous. And so there are tremendous difficulties in delivering the gene and getting enough of the gene in the, the cell to work. And a gene can be used to replace a, a, a dysfunctional gene, whereas Anisense can be used to modify the product of that gene. And therefore, it's very much different and much more versatile. The molecules are extremely different. And so the challenges are much simpler and they're worked out. With gene therapy, uh, even after now almost 50 years of effort, the challenges are still enormous and there's still a ton of work uh, left to do before gene therapy could be used broadly in the industrial scale that we're using it to treat uh, nanorare patients. So a moment ago, you mentioned that you're creating these antisense drugs, these ASOs, for free for families to use after you've done all the work. Can you explain the criteria that a family needs to meet and what they need to do to become a candidate for Enlorem? Sure. First of all, the, the, the patient has to have a disease, a, a mutation that is present in that, pa- muta- in that patient or no more than 30 patients in the world. That's our limit. That's where the economics work. So it, 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 by definition, then, our patients are truly unique and extremely rare. 
Uh, second, the patient has to be genotypically and phenotypically characterized fully. And for that to happen today, it has to be in a tertiary care center. Uh, third, the, the patient has to have a qualified uh, research physician who can do all the work to understand what's wrong with the patient and then treat the patient with an experimental medicine after, after we make it. So the patient has to have an extremely rare disease, has to be fully characterized genotypically and phenotypically, and then work with the research physician to apply to NLORM. And you go to our website, and, and, this, and the applications are fairly complex because we need a lot of information. And then it comes to us, and the next step for us is to determine if that patient is appropriate to treat with an ASO. Uh, we can't address all problems, and we also limit our activity to organs like the liver, kidney, the central nervous system, and the eye, because those are organs that we get very good potency in and we understand in detail. So once we have the application, we evaluate it in terms of the prevalence, the feasibility of ASO treatment, and whether we think that we can address one of the major problems that that patient has. Many of our patients have multi-organ disease, and all of them arrive very, very sick today. Uh, because of the delays in diagnosis. So that's basically it. I think it behooves uh, patients who are well characterized to apply because we understand the technology and we understand what it can do and what it can't do. We have a set of very formal processes to ensure that the quality is at the highest possible quality throughout, including the decision to treat. The decision to treat is a, a really much more complex decision than I think people think, uh, because we're committed to exposing uh, our patients only to prudent risk. And, and before we are going to treat a patient, we must know why we're treating that patient. And if we produce a benefit, it's going to matter to the patient and the family. And so those are very complex risk-benefit decisions. And in that, we're aided by a committee of experts that we call Access to Treatment Committee. And so we typically then, when an application comes in, we spend about a month, six weeks, evaluating it. That means getting into the liter scientific literature, really understanding the mutation, being confident that we know what the cause of the disease is, and assessing whether we have the means to help that patient. Then that is presented to this committee of experts that advise us about whether it's the best thing for that patient to do. And after that, then we initiate the discovery and development of the ASO, and we ask the patient and physician during the, the oh, 15 to 18 months that we strive to to have the ASO ready for the patient in, that we ask the physician and patient to create basically a year and a half or a year natural history study in which they focus on the treatment goals that we have and the measurements that we have agreed to use to assess whether we're doing benefit and collect all that information. And then when we start treatment, we can compare the progression of the patient prior, immediately prior to treatment, to our agreed upon treatment goals and measures during treatment. And that way we have at least a, a reasonable chance of assessing whether we're really helping that patient. I really appreciate the comprehensive and due diligence surrounding each patient. And I'm sure the families do too. It's really remarkable. It's really important. 
I've described what we're doing as industrializing the process. And I think that's really critical for your listeners to understand. Every drug is associated with risk. And an experimental medicine has more risk, by definition. And we, thanks to the efficiency of the technology and the special guidance from the FDA, we move very rapidly to the clinic with less information than we would have for a drug being developed commercially. That means that every step in the process has to be of the highest quality, especially the process that leads to the discovery of the ASO for that patient. It took us more than three decades to develop this technology. We're the experts. We know how to do it. We have the systems and processes in place to do it right. And it has to be done right. And so to be sure that the patient is treated with the best ASO possible and that that patient is, has a, a real opportunity to benefit is really, really critical. And then managing the patient during exposure to an experimental medicine should be done professionally by people who know what they're doing, who've developed drugs for a living, uh, as, as we have it in Lorem. All of that, I think, is critical to maximizing the benefit and minimizing the risk. We cannot guarantee no risk. These are experimental medicines. But we can guarantee prudent risk, and that's our job. And we take that very, very seriously. I know a few kids personally in your program. How are some of your patients doing that have had the drug that was created for them. Mm -hmm. One one thing I do want to make clear, it's not just for children. About a, a third of our patients, or maybe a little more, are adults. Our oldest patient today is in his 60s. So many of these genetic diseases, uh, and you can think of Huntington's as an example, the genetic defect is there, but it doesn't express itself until much later in life. So uh, we certainly have many newborns and many children, but we also have a lot of adults. And the first uh, patient that was treated with a personalized ASO that, that we were involved in actually was, was that ASO was developed while I was still CEO of, of Ionis and CEO of, <laughs> of Van Lorm. And that's a, an 18-year-old German named Anna. And her video, her latest video is on our website. Anna has a rare form of ALS. It's called Fuss ALS. It manifests itself typically in early teens, and untreated is extremely rapidly fatal. In fact, Anna was desperately ill when the ASO treatment was started. We frankly didn't know if we'd even get the ASO to her before she succumbed to the disease. She recovered and did remarkably well. And then, as happens with ALS patients, she had a swallowing problem and actually died and had to be resuscitated. We thought at the end of that, there was no hope. But if you go to our website, you'll see that um, she's now walking up multiple flights of stairs uh, on, her, on her own with no ventilator. She has a speaking tube so her mom can hear her talk for the first time in almost three years. She's planning to go to school. And she was able to write a, a personal note to me over the holidays for an ALS, a patient like her with ALS to have the fine motor coordination to do that is really quite astonishing. She's a patient of Dr. Neil Schneider's at Columbia. And so that's a wonderful experience. Another patient that I know you know is Susanna, who's, uh, I think, six-year-old with a very different kind of disease and different kind of mutation. Treatment there is, is, is still early. And so 
by definition, we should be cautious. But certainly, Luke and Sally, her parents and, and her physician, are very encouraged by what they're seeing, and so are we. So those are a couple. There are other stories in the making, but there will also be disappointments. We will not be able to help everyone. And, and that's very important for people to understand, too. We'll do our best, but we can promise nothing other than our best and an opportunity. I think the first thing that NLARM provides is hope. And hope really matters to anyone who's ever been hopeless. I think that's a pretty obvious statement. And then we convert that to help. And the hope we offer has to be realistic. We can't overpromise. And we work very hard not to overpromise and overdeliver. And so far, I, I think we're, we're doing okay at that. And we're, we're just now beginning. The other thing I want to emphasize is that this is an extraordinary event. This idea was inconceivable until the genomic revolution and until we succeeded in creating this technology. And so we're pioneering something that was inconceivable. Every step we take is a step into the unknown. And so N. Lorem's job is to assure that we do that well and create a model for others to follow as other technologies develop, a model of quality. And that's what we're committed to. And so this is an extraordinary idea, the idea that we could take genetic information, create a genetic-based drug for a single patient, and then give it away for life. <laughs> uh, I just hope people who are listening have a sense of how remarkable that basic set of ideas is and the fact that we're actually able to deliver on it. We're now three years uh, of age. We've had almost, well, certainly more than 190 applications. We've approved for treatment more than 80. And in uh, two weeks in the summer, we filed four INDs. Those are the documents you have to file to get approval to treat with an experimental agent and started treating. And so we're off to a good start. Uh, we still have many challenges ahead of us, including demonstrating that, that a nonprofit model is sustainable. I think we've made great progress in raising money, but the number of patients we can treat is directly proportional to the amount of generosity that contributes to the dollars that we need to do it. Yeah, I'm actually really surprised to hear that many applications have been approved. That's, that's exciting. And I think the word extraordinary isn't even as sparkly enough as it should be to explain the magnificence of this science. You know, when I started in Lorem, I thought by now we might have two or three or four patients. Well, it didn't work out that way. And, <laughs> and that's wonderful. Uh, but it has put a lot of pressure on us. We've had to grow much more rapidly than, than we expected. And we're not meeting our 18-month or even our goal for many of the patients to get them drugs. But we're expanding as rapidly as we can. We've, uh, we're hiring uh, lots of people. And through the generosity of all of our donors, our partner organizations, the pharmaceutical and biotech, and vendors to the industry, as well as disease-oriented groups that we work with, we've been able to raise sufficient funds to expand at this pace. And every dollar that we raise is a step toward another patient to treat. Our partners, the vendors to the industry who are supporting us, have allowed us to reduce the cost per patient, which is remarkably low to begin with. I mean, in the grand scheme of enormous costs of drugs, uh, by 40%. And, you know, 40% is half a patient. And so we measure what we do every day by how many patients are we able to help. And 
as I said uh, in various forums, this wasn't what I really wanted to do at this stage in my life and career, but I'm so very pleased I have had the opportunity to do it. It's been a great journey already. It's a journey of the mind because what we're learning is amazing and we'll be we're I'm writing we're writing a bunch of papers now that will just teach the world about these extremely rare illnesses. Nothing is really known. And it's also a journey of the heart. And uh, there are no abstractions at in Lorem. Every application is a patient and every patient is desperate and every patient has a family that has typically lost hope and lost the ability to dream of a future that that they should have. So we try to deliver on that. Yeah, definitely a journey of the mind. And I love how you circled back to the heart because it reminds me of the handwritten letter that you got from Alana, which I'm sure was so meaningful and will be treasured. And I will definitely link her video in the show notes too, so they can go right to that. Kind of to circle back just a little, so families are a little more clear on the qualifications you said that it's less than 30 patients, but I want, I want to kind of dig into that a little just to may, probably answer some questions for families who are in a patient group that maybe has 150 patients. It's not necessarily the patient group. It's the variant. It's the mutation. NLARM is the first industrial-scale mutation-directed research program, drug discovery program in history. And so we focus on the mutation. Uh, different mutations require different ASOs. So in a patient population, let's say, that may have a 1,000, what we're learning across the board is that in these very rare single-gene diseases, there will be some common mutations where that account for 80 or 90% of the patients, and then a range of ever-rarer mutations that also account for a great deal of suffering and, and death. And so we don't even think about names of the disease. Most of our patients have diseases that have no name. So for your listeners, it is mutation. What is the number of patients that are known to have the mutation that you or your child has? And our bias is to treat. So if you apply and we can convince ourselves that we can help and that it's in that range, we'll treat. Uh, it's just that simple. If we can help, we want to help. So mutation directed. Thanks for clarifying that. That's an important clarification. Thank you. I just felt like there were probably some parents going, oh, I guess I'm out, but it's more specific than that. It is. And uh, let us help. Let, let us see if we can help. I mean, it does take some time and energy to complete those applications, but I think it's well worth it. Yeah. So following the devastating outcomes of those two KCNT1 patients reported in the New York Times last year, are you concerned at all that the FDA might be getting nervous about ASOs? One of the things I've been most concerned about is that innocence technology is rational. And there are academic investigators that confuse rational with easy. <laughs> There's a big difference. To discover and develop an optimal ASO takes enormous experience and lots of systems and millions and millions of ASOs experiences right now. The only two places where that experience really exists is Ionis and Enlorem. Now, there are many new companies coming into the space now that we've shown that it works. And so the expertise will become broader in due course. But today, that knowledge is really concentrated. And you need all that if you're going to do the job and do it well. And it doesn't end when you discover the ASO. You also have to manage that patient professionally. 
as a drug developer. That's a very different process from being an academic physician. And so we've offered to collaborate with anyone in academia who would actually talk to us, and most have. But there are some who've decided that ASOs are simple enough that they can do it. And we've warned against that. And the reason we've warned against it is that inexperience in ASO technology and inexperience in drug discovery and development can be costly. And if it's costly, it's costly to a patient. And these unfortunate events that have happened are a real shame. In fact, uh, the neurology division of the FDA then requested that we meet with them to review our process to identify an optimal ASO. After all, we created the technology. And so I was very grateful for that. And I think the FDA was very thoughtful in their response, and they've been extremely supportive throughout this process. So I, I think the way this, I'm hoping that the way this will go is that the FDA will simply demand more precise development methods from others. And at present, I'm comfortable that the guidance that we enjoy will continue. Perfect. Thank you so much for that answer. And it makes a lot of sense, especially with it being so new, right? And to, to do your due diligence and do your homework and probably go with the gold standard. And it continues to advance. The other thing to remember is that one of the great strengths of ASO technology is that we, we can learn from all the other ASOs of the same chemistry because they're all, they have the same general basic properties. And having the experience to know what can be extrapolated from one ASO to the next and what can't is really critical. And staying aware of what's happening with ASOs in development of the same chemical class is critical, as well as being constantly aware of the progress in the technology. And that means that you have to be steeped in technology. You have to be doing the technology every day as, as your walk of life, which is not possible for a pediatric neurologist or a research physician of any sort. Their, their job is, is very different. So I would argue, just as you would leave the job of managing your child with a neurological disease to the right expert, that you leave discovery and development and managing of ASOs for those patients uh, to the experts who actually created the technology. Well said. Where do you think that we're going to be in five to 10 years with personalized medicine? Right now, the only technology that's ready to do this on an industrial scale is Anasense. You know, and as I look, we have a 10-year strategic plan that we've already (laughs) scrapped because we're so far ahead of where we were. Well, we look forward to being able to treat thousands of patients. And that, and that means that we'll be learning incredible amounts from each of these patients from the aggregate experience. And we're committed to sharing what we learn constantly with all of the audiences. This year, we'll have our first annual meeting of investigators, patients, and parents. We're writing a number of additional peer-reviewed papers now. So that knowledge will accumulate. What is the prevalence of nanorare mutations? No one knows. What is the nature of those mutations? What mutations cause disease? How does disease change over time within a patient? How can we shorten the time to diagnosis? These are all things that we're going to be able to teach in the very near future. As we learn more, then I think the there will be more interest in the space. And as we create a model of quality, others can follow. So we expect to be treating thousands of patients. We hope to move beyond U.S. borders and because these diseases happen around the world. And 
we also fully expect to be assessing our performance and providing both individual performances in patient case reports, as well as our aggregate performance every year. How are we doing? How many patients did we treat? How much did it cost per patient? What evidence do we have that this fraction of patients benefited? What side effects are we seeing? Are the rules that we're using today sufficient to assure that patients are exposed to only prudent side effects? If, if you know what you're doing and you do it right, those are all things we're going to be learning. And all of that will amplify the opportunity for others to follow. I also think it will drive policy. Treatment is always the sharp end of the spear. If you have the opportunity to treat, it makes sense to invest in diagnostics. And the diagnostics here are to introduce genomics into newborn evaluation protocols. So I hope that as NLORM succeeds in industrializing this, we serve as a model for others to follow, and we drive policy changes that will enable more people, more technologies, more organizations to come to the aid of these patients who are literally unserved today. They're unserved entirely. Average time uh, from symptom onset to diagnosis in our experience is about five years. At the UDN experience, it's more like eight, which is a catastrophe. That means the vast majority of patients are not diagnosed, and even when they are, their diseases are so advanced, it's very difficult to help them. It's got to change. My goal is thousands and thousands of patients around the world with quality and to change the world, to drive policy changes that will address this desperately needy patient population and reduce health care costs. It's clear that a failure to diagnose all the years these people spend trying to figure out what's wrong with them, that's billions of dollars a year in health care. And then how, do we, how much do we save if we can create a new Spinraza for a patient? Now, we're not going to make a perfect drug like Spinraza every day, but for sure we're going to bring benefit. That saves money, and that money then can be saved to spend on other patients. So I have big dreams. <laughs> I don't understand anybody who dreams small, but I have big dreams for what we're going to do with these patients. And we're on our way, and we'll, we'll see in four or five years how successful we are at converting this from a dream to a reality. Thank you. I love that dream to a reality. And I love that hope. And I think so many of us are on this crusade and have our hands up in the air saying yes to all of that. Well, you guys, you and many other parents have been pioneers in this long before I got to it. And I like to think that all of us stand on the shoulders of the great scientists, physicians, entrepreneurs who preceded us. And in this space, we stand on the shoulders of the parents and patients who've had to shoulder this burden alone, make the progress that you have. And we're taking advantage of that to try to do what we can. And it takes all of us. This is little alarm isn't going to fix this problem. But if we succeed in creating a quality model, then others can follow. And that's how we translate this from thousands to millions of patients. And it's, it's really millions of patients. We know that. It's going to be millions of nanorare patients that are identified when we really understand the genome and all the mutations. Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, fix the diagnostic problem. It's so simple. I know. <laughs> That's the maddening part of this. It's so simple. And it's happening in other parts of the world. In the UK, in Singapore, and others, they're beginning to genomically sequence all newborns. 
or a large fraction of newborns. And obviously you have to have ethical uh, guidelines and all that. But with that information, then we begin to understand these patients, get to them before they get super sick and treat them. And so that's my vision. And I don't think it should take long. We have the technology, my goodness, let's just get it done. Yes, the rigidity of the current newborn screening program gives me a tick in my eye. <laughs> it's just like, ah. Well, uh, and, that, and it's happening in other parts of the world because they have central pairs and the sort of motivations are better aligned than in the U.S. But we're going to get it done in the U.S. It's just going to take some time and energy that, unfortunately, lots of patients don't have. Right. I know the Guardian study and then what's being done at Rady Children's is beginning to address that. So more power to them and the more the merrier and the sooner the better. The uh, Genomics UK is doing a really nice job of this too. That's right. Yes. Well, Stan, I just have one more question before we close. If you have any advice for the families who have perhaps lost hope or the ones who are now on a quest to cure their child. It is a great sadness to me that the journey is so difficult. And I think the first step has to be to find your way to a tertiary care center where you can be genomically sequenced and identify a physician who is capable and willing to treat. That is the first thing you must do. And then once that's done, emphasize the opportunity that that Inlorm brings and, and get that application filled. On a broader level, I think it's to recognize that there, that we're at this unique moment in, in the history of science and medicine where many of these patients can be helped and speak out, drive the emotional and intellectual state of affairs to a far better position than where it is today and don't lose hope. The technology is advancing rapidly and hopelessness is, um, is a catastrophic state for a human being. Thank you, Stan. I'm so grateful to you and the work that you've done and especially for your compassion and your empathy and your human touch. I'm looking forward to sharing our conversation and I'm grateful for your time. So thanks for being my guest today. Well, thank you. And uh, thank you for all the pioneering efforts that you and others have done to enlighten me about how desperate this situation is for many folks. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast. If you like what you hear, please share this show with your people and please make sure to rate and review it on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also head over to Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to connect with me and stay updated on the show. If you're interested in sharing your story or if you have anything you would like to contribute, please submit it to my website at effieparks.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show and for supporting me along the way. I appreciate y'all so much. I don't know what kind of day you're having, but if you need a little pick-me-up, Ford's got you. <laughs>